We are in a series in the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And so we're going to take a look at just a few verses here together this morning. It's the first thing that follows the Beatitudes. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And we're, the, the Sermon on the Mount is trying to address the question, how do I live in the kingdom? If I'm in the kingdom of heaven or in the kingdom of God, if I've accepted Christ as the king, well, what are his instructions? How do I live? And uh, he tells us this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. Let's stand together as we read God's word. Jesus, looking at his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount, says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You may be seated. Let's take a few moments to reflect together on God's word. Good teachers will say this phrase, that repetition is the mother of all learning. There's no way to learn something unless you hear it again and again. And so I'm going to assume that's true this morning. And particularly since we uh, lost last week, I want to review back the last couple of weeks to try to put this uh, text in context of what we're talking about this, this morning. Three weeks ago, uh, I talked about Jesus' very first sermon. Look with me, chapter 4, verse 17, it's one sentence. It's a one-sentence sermon. This sums up everything that he's trying to say, and he says this phrase again and again, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so when Jesus says this one-sentence sermon, he's informing us of some things, and, and the first thing he's informing us of is a current reality that everyone here lives in. And that is we live in a time, everyone lives in this time of competing kingdoms. Everyone lives in a space where there's competition for who's going to be the king and which kingdom you're going to live in. So Jesus is informing us of this. And James Smith says this, to be human 
is to desire some kingdom. This kingdom is a picture which captures your imagination. And we crave that picture and then orient our lives to pursue that picture. The question is not whether you long for some version of the kingdom, but which version you long for. Do you hear what he's saying? Everybody has kingdom cravings or kingdom pursuits. And you can be in 10th grade or you can be uh, 80 years old. Everyone has some kind of kingdom pursuit. It's a picture. It forms itself in a picture of the who you want to be or what you want. And then you orient your life around to trying to make the grade or trying to get the person or trying to get the career. Or whatever it is, those are kingdom cravings. The question isn't whether you're pursuing the kingdom. It's just which version you're pursuing. And then Jesus says, he asks us to repent. He calls us to turn around. You've gotten all of your attention. You have all of your vision on this picture. Several years ago, I hope you don't have the book, but there was a book called The Secret. And The Secret you had, I don't remember what it was called, but I think it was called a vision board. And what you did is you put a board up in your house and you, you cut out pictures of things that you wanted. And if you just stared at that board, then they became a reality in some way. And so, again, not, not, not really great, but th- that's the idea. You're staring at a picture. You're staring at some reality. You're staring at something that you want. And you hope if you just sort of stare at it long enough and you orient your life around it, then it becomes true. And Jesus is saying, that's a bad kingdom. Repent, turn away, turn around and get your eyes focused on me as the king and a different kingdom. So that's that's his call. Uh, This this past week I was reading through some different things in preparation for the sermon. And I read this about infants. And so I thought, oh, this would be good because we have a lot of people here who have infants right now, which is great. And it it says this, it takes 6 to 12 weeks for an infant to genuinely return a smile to their mother. It takes 6 to 12 weeks for an infant to genuinely return a smile to its mother. Now, before then, you would, all mothers are saying, oh, no, 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 my kid, and he smiled right away. And he's not saying they don't look like they're smiling, but usually it's like gas, they said. It's just some other reason. It's not... Actually returning what you want, it's for other purposes. But somewhere around a month and a half to three months, the child actually sees your smile and and actually gives you the smile back. They return it back. It's not a reflexive smile, it's a responsive smile. And this is what one writer said. After a mother has smiled at her child for many weeks, this is such a great picture, After a mother has smiled at her child for many weeks, she finally receives her child's smile in in response. It takes time. You have to stare and smile at your child in order to awaken love in the heart of the child. You're, You're holding your child, and it has something in it, but you as the parent, you have to awaken that love. And the way you wake in that love is you stare at their soul and smile, and it bursts into flame six to, to 12 weeks later. It's just a magnificent picture. And when Jesus comes into the world, he's coming in smiling. 
He's coming in loving the world. He's smiling at you. He's smiling at me. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to awaken your soul to his smile so that you would smile back. See, you are, everyone's smiling for some kind of kingdom. You're saying, if I could just have that kingdom, then I would have life. I would have a great big smile when it all comes together. And Jesus is saying, look at my smile. Just stare at me. And as you start staring at Jesus, it takes time. But he awakens an eternal love that's in your DNA. And you say, no, no, I want this kingdom. Not, I want his kingdom, not, not the kingdom that I've been pursuing. And then he just, right after, he, right after verse 17, he gives you two very quick examples. By walking by the Sea of Galilee, this is chapter 4, verses 18. He sees two brothers, Peter and Andrew, and they're casting their net into the sea. And, they, and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed Jesus. And then he, he goes a little further and he sees two brothers, James and John, and they're mending their nets. And he calls out, follow me. And immediately they left their boat, their father, their nets, and they followed after Jesus. That's, that's the picture. He, he's saying, follow me, stare at me. Walk with me. Uh, adjust your eyes to, to my smile. Not, not your career, not your comfort, not shopping, not sex, not power, not politics, not beauty, not busyness, but me. Take your eyes off of all those things. Place them on me. And I'm going to stare at you, and you're going to stare back at me, and I'm going to awaken your soul for your love for your heavenly Father. Now, these men are mending nets. It's such a good picture that it will always have to need to be mended again. Whenever they cast their net out to catch something and they pull it in, no matter how great the, the thing is, they've got to go back out the next day. It's just the same way. You keep casting your net out hoping this is going to be the kid, big catch, but you always have to mend it and go back out. And he's saying, we're not doing that anymore. You cast your net on me, and that's, it's one one cast and that's it no more mending of your nets it's an exciting but it's an unnerving invitation because to take your eyes off of your kingdom and start staring at jesus very difficult to do two weeks ago we looked at the beatitudes chapter 5 verses 2 through 12 and the beatitudes beautifully express how people enter into the kingdom and specifically, the key verse here in the Beatitudes is chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, so everyone, what Jesus is trying to help everyone on this hillside understand is that there's only one way to get into the kingdom of heaven. And that is you have to, have, you have to be poor in spirit. And the word I used there was bankruptcy. You have to have a, a spiritual bankruptcy. In, o, in other words, when you come to Jesus, you, you can't have anything else in your hands. You don't have anything to offer. He just simply gives it to you as a gift. And, and in case you don't understand just the statement, he gives you a picture later in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, 
that leads to life. So, so if you don't get poor in spirit, you just can't understand that. Just think, okay, it's a narrow gate. It's a, it's a narrow gate, and this is the way to life. And when I read that, I want to ask, why is it a narrow gate? Why isn't it a big garage door? Why, why isn't it something huge? Why, why is it a tiny little narrow gate that gets you to life, Jesus? And I think what he's trying to say is only two people fit through this gate. Jesus and you. It cannot fit anything else. It cannot fit any anyone else. You, you cannot bring along any sin that you have to pay for. You have to drop all those sins and just realize Jesus paid for all those. I can't bring them through the gate like I did something. You have to drop all of your self-righteous deeds that made you think you could earn heaven. That's actually harder sometimes than dropping your sin. See, when you repent, when you turn around, one thing you turn away from is the sin that creates a wall between you and God. But there's also something else you have to turn away from. You have to turn away from your own righteousness that you thought was going to get you to God. So you have to repent of sin and self-righteousness. Nothing fits through the gate just you and jesus so it's a narrow gate no other nothing else can come in when you come in with you and we have this foundation set so we understand jesus has come he's saying he's the new king he's got this great invitation to come into the kingdom and the way you get in is you have to come spiritually bankrupt. You can't have anything with you. And you come in just with Jesus. And then you get into the kingdom of heaven. And the most net, nat, natural next question is, okay, I'm in this new kingdom. I've got so many things to learn. I'm so used to living in my old kingdom. I know exactly how to live in that old kingdom to make it work. How do I live in this new kingdom? How do I follow this new king? And the answer is the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what we're really talking about the next several months. It's just, how do I live once I'm inside the kingdom? And it's fascinating to me. Now, Jesus could have arranged it anyway. The very first thing he wants you to know is how to live in the world. Do you see that? Verses 13 through 17. Okay, you've gotten inside the kingdom. Now, let's make sure you understand how to stay in the world, how to live in this world. Because you're still in an area of competing kingdoms. And I need you to understand how to have your life in this kingdom and also how to deal with this other kingdom, the kingdom of the world. And I would just want to make four observations here. So let me read again the text and then let me make some observations. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill which cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under the basket, but put it on a stand. It gives light to the whole house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. They're going to see you and glorify God who is in heaven. Observation number one. Living in a world of competing kingdoms is going to create Many, many tension points. Living, you and I, living in a world that still is competing kingdoms is going to create 
a great many tension points. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you feel this tension every single day. I mean, how do I fit into this culture? Now, now that I've stepped into the kingdom, I'm still living in my neighborhood. I'm still going to my same job. I, I still go to the gym with the same group of friends. I'm still at the same school. Whatever the case may be, how do I fit into this culture? The culture that's in a state of decay, how do I fit into that culture? What choices should I make with my money? What, what, how should I spend money on makeup? Should I spend money on makeup? How about school choices? How about music? How about entertainment? You, you, know, you feel it, don't you? How do you live at UNCW or a high school or a secular business and they have all this competition of how you're supposed to be, live, do, buy? How do you live there in a decaying culture? How do you exercise your, your, your faith in that moment? And, and in case you, ha- you don't feel it, How about how are you supposed to vote? Man, I get emails every day telling me how I'm supposed to vote. And they're from the most godly people, and they have totally different viewpoints. Do they not? You probably get them too. This Christian person here that I love and respect tells me this way. This Christian person here who I love and respect tells me the totally opposite way. How is it you're supposed to attach yourself to a decaying culture as a Christian? It's a great tension. Andrew Wells describes this tension so so accurately. Listen to what he says. In every Christian, there are two impulses. You see if you feel these two impulses. First, the indigenous impulse. Second, the pilgrim impulse. The indigenous is mean you're you're part of the home, you're you're a part of the culture. Pilgrim is you're just passing through. And these these two impulses. The gospel must become indigenous in every culture. It must find a home. That's the indigenous impulse, according to Andrew Walls. Yet at the same time, the gospel must produce a pilgrim mindset, loosening people from their culture. The gospel has to criticize and correct the culture. It turns people into aliens. And exiles within their own culture. It's, we don't have to go to Andrew Walls. We can just go to the Bible. Paul says this, Romans 12, 2. Do not conform. What does it say? Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world. That's a pilgrim impulse. You just take that out of context. and It's just whatever you do. Don't form any kind of habits that... Make you feel like you're like the world. How about the Apostle Paul, same writer, 1 Corinthians 9.22, become all things to all men. Hmm. Now, it sure sounded like I wasn't supposed to conform in any way to the culture, and now you're saying, do everything you can to conform to the culture in some way so that you might, in some, some hope that just one person could be saved because you became indigenous inside the culture. We don't have to just stay with the Apostle Paul. How about Jesus in his prayer, John 17? I do not ask, this is Jesus praying on behalf half of the disciples, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I'm not asking that you take the disciples out of the world. That's indigenous. I want them to stay in the world. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Hmm. 
Okay, I'm, I'm, not, I'm asking that you don't take them out of the world, but they're not of the world. So that's where we get the phrase, be in the world, but what? Not of the world. See, this tension is, is everywhere, and it causes this question, well, Pastor Paul, how am I supposed to navigate that tension? That's a different sermon. That's not my sermon today. You're going to have to spend your lunchtime trying to figure that one out. But do you see, that is such an excellent question for people in the kingdom to be asking themselves. Because it's not always obvious. And, and what I want you to hear me say, it's not always going to be unified. So you attach a Bible verse to how your kids should be educated. It's not going to work. A lot of these things are just tensions. You have to figure out what's the best thing for you in terms of your vote. What's the best thing for you in terms of your money. And you've got to do it in a collective manner. That's what's so valuable about the church. These are people I can trust. They really love God. I can begin to wrestle with these things. If you're a parent of a teenager, please have these conversations. How are you supposed to be dressing? How are you supposed to stay on that team? How are you supposed to interact with those people with that language? What are you supposed to be doing? They feel that tension. You've got to help them navigate that tension. So observation number one, there's going to be a great, great tension. There's not always going to be uniformity on these things, how you have this indigenous principle versus the pilgrim principle. Observation number two, the world is in trouble. The, 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 the illustrations that Jesus, is, Jesus uses aren't by accident. He doesn't go, oh, I don't know, salt and light? Okay, let's use that. No, he, he's purposeful in what he's saying. And he's telling the church, these disciples, you're the salt and you're the light. Now, salt prevents decay. Light prevents darkness. So what is the world? Decaying and dark. It's not an accident. He's, he's saying, I'm sending you into a dark, decaying world. So this world, absent from any outside help, is going towards darkness and decay. If you like science, it's the, the second law of thermodynamics. You know this scientist? I wouldn't have unless I read it today, I mean last week. But it's called entropy. I remember my teacher in physics telling me this, and my eyes started spinning around in my head. But here's what it says. In a closed system, that system denigrates into disorder. So when you live in a closed system like us, it's going, it's going to go towards disorder. It's going to go towards darkness and decay. Maybe you're not good at the, the second law of thermodynamics, and you, you just like Murphy's Law. What does Murphy's Law say? Whatever can happen that's bad, what's, what's going to happen? It is going to happen. It's just going towards darkness and decay. And that's what, that's what Jesus is saying about the world. The world is in trouble. It's in trouble. And so observation number three, the local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of a decaying and dark world. That's God's plan A. That's his plan I'm going to send you, you disciples. He's looking at his disciples and he's saying, it's you guys. You, you, if that's northern. Y'all, if you're southern. It's you guys, it's y'all, it's you all. You all are the hope of the world. 
It's amazing. He says to these disciples, you are the light of the world. I thought Jesus was the light of the world. Now I'm the light of the world. Who's the light of the world? Do you see the power he's infusing to these men? You're going to start this local church, and your local church is going to be on the front edge of fighting decay and darkness. It's incredible. This new band of believers forming the church. This is why the world is not without hope. It's because this band of believers is going to attach itself right onto a dark and decaying world. If you were, I really want you to feel the weight of Jesus' words here. Because salt is a, a chemical compound which, which mixes together with the world and prevents decay. You, you think about it mostly in, in meats. If you just have meat on a counter, it doesn't take long before it becomes rancid. So without refrigeration, how do you, how do you preserve the meat for a long time? You rub salt into the meat, and then you hang it, and you, it can last for a long time. That's basically what beef jerky is. And so this meat doesn't decay. It, it's going towards decay, but in order to prevent decay, the, the salt has to be rubbed into it. Or it's a can't like a candle. When the power is out, everybody, many people experienced that this week, did you not? And before the power went out, in my house, honey, you get any batteries for the flashlight? I got the candles. That's how it worked. Why? Because the power is going to go out. When the power goes out, we've got to have some other source of light. That's going to be the church. The church is the, the hope of the world. No president, no person, no institution, no website, no movement, no law, no education, no foreign policy, nothing else. Is Jesus building except the church? He is building the church. And where is he building his church? At the gates of hell. And he promises if we just have the right president and the right economic policy. And no, 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 no. Just Jesus is enough. Amen. And he's building it. And he's going to build something that's going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So, so I just want us to appreciate the eternal redemptive potential of the local church. The kind of power that God is assigning to a local body of believers. So, so right now. God has specifically set Christ's community church. He's specifically seeing you. And he's ready to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you ready? You ready to shine light out? You ready to attach yourself to a decaying culture? I'm sending you. Don't wait on me. I'm waiting on you. I'm already telling you how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it through you. He's looking at these 12 disciples. He's, he's tapping them on the shoulder on the Sermon on the Mount saying, guys, I'm going to send you. And he's doing it today. You can insert your own name and know that he's tapping you on the shoulder right now saying, I need and want you to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. How, how could you say no 
if you're really looking at Jesus, how could you say no? The rich young ruler staring right at Jesus and says no. Why? I'm really busy in my own kingdom. I really like being my own king. See, there's people here who like religion. Come on Sundays. I like, I like all that stuff. I've got it attached to my belt. But when God's tapping you on the shoulder and say, let's go, let's get rid of your kingdom and be about my kingdom. I need you to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. I'm tapping you on the shoulder right now. I've given you this body. I've given you your talents. I've infused you with your certain spiritual gifts. I need you at your workplace or your neighborhood or your school. I'm tapping you on the shoulder right now. And so many people say, but I just got to get through this semester. I've got to get past this quarter. When I retire, when I get enough, you see, that, that, that's, I'm most interested in my kingdom. So it's easier to say no than, than you might think. One couple of examples. The early church was the first 300 years of the church history mostly thought of as a time of great persecution. And here's what one of the early church leaders observed. Most Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another, heedless of danger. They took charge of the sick, attending to every need, ministering to them in Christ. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors, cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and caring for others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their, set, in their stead. Wow, that's attaching yourself to the culture. If you were to look at Matthew 8 and 9, this is right after the Sermon on the Mount. Here are the three people that Jesus touches, the leper, the tax collector, and the Roman soldier. These are the people no Jewish person would touch. See, he's going to live it out. He's going to say, I'm going to give you this sermon. And the rest of Matthew is just reflecting back on this sermon and say, this is what it looks like. The worst kinds of people, the leper, the tax collector, the Roman oppressor, the soldier, those are the people that I'm after. I'm trying to attach my life to those kinds of people. Not good-looking people. Terrible people. The, the worst kinds of people are the people I'm attaching myself to. But I think if we really have the heart and the eyes of Jesus, if, if we have the same heart that he has and the same eyes that he has, when we go out into the world, there'll be some place, some person, some area of decay that's just unacceptable for the Christian. I mean, you, you can't do everything. I can't do everything. But you're going to look into a life and say, it is unacceptable that this person lives in this kind of spiritual or poverty or decay. I just can't take it anymore. 
And you start attaching yourself to that person or that city or that area or that community or whatever it is. It's not going to be a hundred places. You don't have that kind of energy, but there's going to be some place God's drawn your heart and you just say, that's unacceptable to me. And you begin to attach yourself to that. And you begin to expend yourself, your money, your time, your resources. You you just can't look at a little boy and say, he doesn't have a father, he doesn't have a model of a father, and and I walk away. I just can't do it. Or a family. Or a community. Or the public realm, being a politician. You just say, I can't, I, 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 that's, I, it's unacceptable to me. And God has called someone, maybe he's calling you to be salt in life, light. This isn't, this is exactly what we see in the gospel. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. What did he send? An instruction book. Uh, no. Uh, money. Uh, no. He just got fed up with the world and said, you guys never change, I'm not coming down. No. See, these would be all things that I might think would be awesome. I don't have time for that, but I've got some instructions. I'll write a manual and send it over there and see if that works. No, it doesn't. How about some money? No, it doesn't. You've got to attach yourself. And what does Jesus send? He sent, or go does God send? Jesus, his very best. He gives his very best and he attaches himself to the world in such a way that he sucks up all the sin so that we might have his righteousness. It's incredible. And you get to just be a little picture, a little model of that in some place in the world that God has specifically designed you for. Now, now there's one note here that I want to make sure you understand that when you attach yourself to a person or a community or a, a situation, uh, uh, some kind of um, social injustice, whatever it may be, it, you will it will be expensive with your time, your emotions. But but you can't attach yourself for return. This is a big danger. I get involved. So my main motive is for return. People's lives change. The situation change. We certainly hope that's the outcome. But that's not what drives you to do it. What, what, drive, what drives me to do it is because somebody did it for me. Somebody saw a ter- really terrible person in the person of Paul Phillips. And they attached themselves to me. And said, Paul, I'm going to take off all of this stuff and give you great joy. See, if you just do it for return, that's going to be very difficult. Because you might not get a lot of return. But if you do it from something, from the love of God, then even if it's hard, I can still go on. Because he has an eternal fuel that can help me understand he's attached himself to me. So I'm I'm willing to go attach myself to someone else. Finally, the light. The light shines out. 
It's, it's really Jesus saying, please don't hide it. Please, please don't get in the kingdom and then just like cover yourself up. You've got to be on a stand somewhere. You've got to take a stand somewhere. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow Jesus. Please notice verse 16, the the ultimate goal. You're going to live like a shining example and people are going to see, see you. But that can't be the termination point. They've got to see you and what? Glorify God. So Jesus is staring at you. He's smiling at you. The, the, the best picture I had of this, we're the light. How are we the light? Well, the, the old school glow sticks. I know new school glow sticks, you just kind of crack them and they glow. But the old school glow stick, what did you have to do with the old school glow stick? You had to put it underneath the lamp, right? If you put the old school glow stick in your drawer, you pull it out at night, and guess what? doesn't shine. So you put it underneath your lamp or whatever in the sun, and then when it gets dark, it, it's, it's, it's out. It actually emanates light out from itself. That's what Jesus is asking you to do. Keep staring at me. I'm going to fill your life up with light so that when you go out into the world, as Paul says in Philippians, you hold out the word of life, you shine. You actually emanate out. But when people come and they're attracted to you in some way, you say, yes, but God. And it's full circle. They start looking at God and not you. God starts smiling on their soul. And they return that smile. And enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, um, It's so hard to be in this world and not of the world. And my guess is, because I feel this way, these days feel a lot harder than maybe previous days. How, how is it I'm supposed to attach to a decaying culture and not decay myself? pray for my friends for that tension those constantly revolving questions that have to be answered and Lord you've planted Christ Community Church and you've infused it with redemptive responsibilities that are beyond what we can even imagine that we are the hope of the world and we're the hope for just this little tiny piece of geography here in Wilmington to, to Uh, Be light to spread out past these walls and, and purposefully go into dark places where we might absorb the disease in order to rescue someone else. It's a it's a tall task. It's so easy for every one of us, including myself, to walk out the door and immediately become interested in my own kingdom. So you need to help us. You need to challenge us. You need to 
reorient us. You need to smile at us with greater intensity so we can really trust. Take these timid, fearful souls and give us an eternal perspective, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, stand together and sing our closing song.